Space, the final frontier. This is the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. Its mission to explore the solar system, to seek out new observations and data, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now the host of the Observer's Notebook, Tim Robertson. Hello and welcome to the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast for the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. I'm Tim Robertson, your host of the podcast and also the coordinator of the training program within the ALPO. The Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers is an international organization devoted to the study of the sun, moon, planets, asteroids, meteors, and comets. Our goals are to stimulate, coordinate, and generally promote the study of these bodies using methods and instruments that are available within the communities of both amateur and professional astronomers. The Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers collects and analyzes observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomenon, and publishes those in, with detailed reports in the quarterly publication, the Journal of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers, otherwise known as the Strolling Astronomer. This podcast depends upon donations from you, our listeners, to keep it alive. If you enjoy what you hear on the Observer's Notebook, you can donate it to it via Patreon by giving as little as $1 a month. If you feel even more generous, for $5 you receive early access to the podcast before it goes public. For a monthly donation of $10, you receive a copy of the Novice Observer's Handbook. And for $35 a month, you will receive producer credits on the podcast. You can help us out by going to www.patreon.com slash Observer's Notebook. A reminder, the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers maintains many individual observing sections and programs devoted to the study of various solar system bodies and phenomenon. Each is managed by one or more coordinators that collect and study the submitted observations. If you would like to join the ALPO, you can for as little as $14 a year. For more information, you can visit us on the internet at www.alpo-astronomy.org. And now, The Observer's Notebook. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back to the Observer's Notebook podcast. We have a return visitor to the podcast today, Carl Hergenrother. Welcome back, Carl. Thanks for having me, Tim. Yeah, Carl's the uh, Comet Section Coordinator, and why don't you give everybody a little bit of uh, background about yourself? Okay, so I've been the coordinator for the last couple of years here. Um, I've been an observer of comets, actually, since back in my grade school days. Um, I think the first comet I saw, actually, I know the first comet I saw was Comet Halley back in uh, 1985. In the, the fall of '85, and um, came out to the University of Arizona to you know d follow my studies, and there I was able to actually hook up with a few comet researchers and started studying comets professionally. That eventually led to working at the Catalina Sky Survey, which was it still is one of the premier near Earth asteroid discovery uh, programs. And while I was there, I was able to discover a few comets, one photographically and three with CCDs. Uh, since then, my uh, professional travels have led me more along the lines of studying asteroids rather than comets, and uh, currently I'm a member of the OSIRIS-REx mission, which is a NASA-funded New Frontiers class mission that is going to a near-Earth asteroid that <clears throat> may or may not be related to comets, but the, the goal is to actually collect material from this asteroid and bring it back to Earth. Um, in my spare time, when I have some, <laughs> um, 
I am still an amateur astronomer. I still do a lot of observing in my backyard. I'm in the process of kind of putting together a nice little, maybe not quite fully automated, but a nice, you know, backyard observatory. And the goal is, yes, to observe some asteroids, but really it's to monitor comets. Oh, very good. Very good. Now, how's OSIRIS-REx working right now? Pretty, pretty well? Working really well. We launched last year, uh, last September. We just conducted a flyby of the Earth. We used the Earth's gravity to kick us into a higher inclination orbit to match the uh, target asteroid we're going to, which is this asteroid Bainu. And the first images of Bainu, mind you, it'll be far off and it'll just look like a star, should come in next summer. Oh, so great. this time next year, I'm going to be really busy. When is the rendezvous? So we basically by about this time next year, December, is when we are at least a few kilometers from Bainu, oh, and we're doing a lot of close flybys as we start mapping the train, as we start figuring out its gravity field and learning everything we need to know about it before we insert into orbit around Bainu, which will be early in uh, 2019. And then it's looking right now, sometime in 2020 is when we're actually going to attempt to collect the sample. And then the sample will be returned back to Earth in September 2023. Fantastic. Sample return. I love it. Yeah, we just launched, I work for uh, Goddard, and we just launched our weather satellite uh, two weeks yes. ago, JPSS. Yep, and of course, as you know, Goddard is a big part of OSIRIS-REx. Right. right. Yes, they are. Very cool. Yep. All right. Well, we're talking today, apparently 2018 is going to be a pretty decent year for comets. Yes, what, it will be. Why yes. don't you give us a little rundown of what we can expect this coming year? Okay, I mean, nowadays there are thousands of comets that we know about. Mm -hmm. And about 80 comets are predicted to come to perihelion in 2018. And the majority of those comets will be bright enough that if you have even a reasonably sized backyard telescope with a CCD, you can observe quite a few of these comets down to about 18 20th magnitude. But what I'm going to concentrate on here are the brighter comets, okay. the comets that are going to get at least 10th magnitude or brighter, the ones that, you know... And I know most of the stuff that we have submitted to the Alpo nowadays are CCD observations. But I'm and I, you know, I do my own. I take part in doing CCD observations as well. But I really do like seeing the photons with my eyes. So I'm going to concentrate on the brighter objects and the ones that you know the average person with the average backyard setup. You don't need a giant telescope can actually see. These are the comets you can see visually. Okay, now, just for clarification for our uh, less experienced observers, the dimmest star you can see with the naked eye is fifth magnitude, sixth magnitude, depending on where you're located. If you're in Arizona, probably sixth. Uh, San Fernando Valley, where I was grew up, maybe third. So, you know, that, that gives you an idea of what we're looking at. So, tenth magnitude, you need a telescope, basically, to see. You need a telescope. Okay. Um, binoculars, you can probably do pretty good seventh, eighth magnitude, even from reasonably bright skies. But if you have an 8-inch telescope, yeah, you're talking about 10. Okay. So, yeah, we've got seven comets that are predicted to become brighter in magnitude 10, and it's a nice assortment of different kinds of comets. Um, we have a few that are making their first pass through the intersolar system. Um, there's a couple that honestly may not survive the year, and it'll be interesting to watch whether or not they survive their passage through perihelion. And then we have kind of a, a nice crop of older comets, Um I mean, all comets are, you know, go back billions of years, but when I mean older, comets that were discovered decades ago, and in some cases more than a century ago, and that have been around a few times. Some kind of like the old standbys that come around every, you know, decade or two. Right. And so, the first comet that we're going to kick off with, and I'm going to kind of go in chronological order throughout the year, okay. starting the Comet Hines, which is a C2017-T1. 
So this is a comet discovered by Ari Hines, who works for Atlas, which is a really a near-Earth asteroid survey that's in Hawaii. It's actually Atlas stands for the Asteroid Terrestrial Impact Last Alert System. It's kind of a neat setup where they have two half-meter F2 telescopes. I mean, imagine having those in your backyard. <laughs> With 10 CCDs. So seven and a half degree across field of view. That, and that's almost it, cheating. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And they cover pretty much the entire sky every night or two. And what they're really looking for is asteroids that are of the size of the, the impactor that you know blew up over Russia a couple of years ago over Chelyabinsk. They're looking for 10 to 100-meter asteroids that may be only days or weeks out from impacting the Earth. So in a way, it's kind of like our last early warning system of anything coming in. And of course, as they're covering the sky down to about 20th magnitude every night or two, they do uncover comets. And two of the comets I'm going to talk about are Atlas discoveries. So this first one, Hines, most of them are named Comet Atlas. This was actually named after Ari Hines, who works there. And it's a dynamically new comet. And what that means is that based on its orbit, it looks like it's never been through the inner solar system before. Hmm. Um, these comets have, they can be a little bit problematic. Um, some of the big, I guess you can say, disappointments in the history of comets were dynamically new comets. Mm -hmm. uh, think the Hutek. Um, if you're really old, think Cunningham back mm -hmm. in the, the 40s. And of course, more recently, think Ison. That happened right. a few years ago. These are comets that, when they're discovered, usually they're discovered very far out, sometimes you know 10 AU or something out, and they appear to be extremely bright. And so people get all excited, and they kind of extrapolate the brightness trend. They go, oh, this comet's going to be spectacular, and naked eye, and blah, blah, blah. Kind of like what happened with Ison. Right. But it turns out, because these comets haven't been around, haven't passed close to the sun before, they have a lot of fresh volatiles. They're full of ices that the... You know, an older comet is already burnt off. But these comets, because they're seeing, you know, the heat for the first time, the comet gets extremely active, blows up a big coma, sometimes even a long tail when it's far out. And then as they get closer in, because these really volatile ices have basically been burnt off, you kind of get the more, the, the real comet shows up. The, and so as a result, the comet doesn't brighten quite as rapidly. And in fact, some cases doesn't brighten at all intrinsically when you take into account the fact that it's getting hotter, getting closer to the sun, getting closer to the earth. And so they end up underperforming. <clears throat> so Heinz looks like it's one of these dynamically new comets. <clears throat> what that means is that it may not get quite as bright as we're predicting, which is about ninth-ish magnitude in January of this year. Okay. What it also means, uh, with a perihelion distance of only 0.58 AU, if you, you know, just to remind everyone, the distance between the Earth and the Sun is about 1 AU. So 0.58 is between Mercury and Venus. A lot of times, these dynamically new comets, when they get within 1 AU of the Sun, especially when they get very close to the Sun, they'll disintegrate. Right. They'll break up on approach, like Ison did. They'll break up on approach. So this is a comet that, you know, to start off the year in January will be about ninth magnitude. It'll be uh, pretty high in the sky for northern hemisphere observers. Um, it very quickly drops close to the sun, and perihelion is on February 21st. So for visual observers in the northern hemisphere, January is a good month to be observing it. And then we'll probably lose it sometime in February. 
But it'll be interesting to see, because we can follow it pretty much up to Perihelion, maybe a little bit past Perihelion. It'll be interesting to see whether or not it survives Perihelion. Um, after Perihelion, the comet will be much fainter, but Southern Hemisphere observers, if it still exists, will be able to really start observing it, though they'll probably need a CCD. Okay. Now, are comets normally uh, th- their magnitude less after Perihelion, or is there any correlation to that? There does seem to be a correlation with that. There's, It depends on the comet. Um, some comets will seem to fade much more rapidly. These dynamically new comets seem to fade much more rapidly. Because they're they burning off so much material coming in toward the sun that there isn't... Right, and a lot of their brightness is dust that might have been released okay. years ago that are following it in, and as it goes through perihelion, that dust gets rapidly blown away. And like I said, it's almost like the, the real comet, the comet that will... You know, basically what the comet will look like the next time around okay. when it's significantly less ice on it. Um, basically shows up during the second half there after perihelion. For a lot of the dynamically older comets, and in fact the second comet on my list here, also discovered by the Atlas program, C2017T3, but this one actually is, is called Comet Atlas, looks like it's a dynamically old comet. Hmm. And these comets have a habit of rapidly brightening. They're not very bright when they're discovered really far out. And then they rapidly brighten as they approach perihelion, so they kind of almost look like they overperform a bit. And then afterwards, they do seem like they do. They are brighter after perihelion than they are before perihelion. Like it almost takes a little bit of time for that thermal pulse to work its way through hmm. an old, almost crusted over nucleus. Okay. So the second comet atlas, um, perihelion won't be till July, so now we're getting more towards the summertime. So there will be a kind of a little gap there in the spring where there's really not too many bright comets to be observed. And this comet, unfortunately, is its orbit is pretty poorly placed with respect to the Earth. It does get down to a perihelion of 0.82 AU, which is pretty close, but it's on the other side of the sun. Oh. And this is a comet that's from the northern hemisphere, we probably won't see visually at all. This will be more of a southern hemisphere object. Um, this summer, July, August, September, it'll be a low object, but southern hemisphere observers will be able to pick it up, and it may brighten to at least eighth or ninth magnitude. Okay, well, we do have listeners down under, so... <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. That's good. But at least in the early part of the year, um, even though it may only be 14th, 15th, 16th magnitude, CCD observers, it'd be well worth the time to actually observe it, and... You know, we can get magnitudes just as easily off CCD stuff as, of course, the visual observers can do. So every little bit helps. Okay. So the summer gets to be a little... That's when the comet activity really picks up here. So our third comet is Comet Bandstars, C2017-S3. And it is also a summer comet. So starting with uh, Atlas there in July, mm-hmm. and half of the year really kicks off a number of comets that are going to become bright in, the, in 2018. And uh, PanSTARS was discovered by the, well, PanSTARS is the Panoramic Survey Telescope and Rapid Response System. This is another near-Earth asteroid-slash-comet survey based in Hawaii, except this one uses 1.8-meter telescopes with giant 7-square-degree field of views and can detect objects down to about 23rd magnitude. So as you can imagine, there are a lot of comet PanSTARS nowadays. Yes, there are. (laughs) So S3 is dynamically new, and if I had to pick one comet to put some money down on that won't survive the end of the year, this might be it. 
it has a perihelion distance of only 0.21 AU. You're talking, it gets closer to Mercury. Now, is that, would that be considered a sun grazer? Nope. nope. Sun grazers actually get much, much closer. Okay. It, you know, sun grazers get down to within a few solar radii of the surface. Oh, okay. Yeah. So this object, um, it could become fairly bright. It's still a little early. You know, when it was discovered, it was out about orbit of Jupiter. Um, perihelion is in the middle of August, August 15th. And like I said, it gets down to about 0.21 AU. Um, it's, it'll be well observed from the northern hemisphere. We can follow it all the way down, not quite the perihelion. We'll lose it about two weeks beforehand. But it'll be interesting to see whether or not a comet like this will actually survive perihelion. It may even disintegrate well before perihelion mm-hmm. because it is very intrinsically faint, and it will get down to a very, very you know, small perihelion distance. Um, yeah, I've seen w- a few comets in my life, you know, you, you witness them breaking up, which is pretty cool because you'll have one nucleus one night and then the next night you might have three yeah and they all have separate tails so this is this is a possibility here with this one probably definitely a possibility and there's still some question as to why do comets break up exactly what is going on is it possible that the nucleus is just super small and that it literally just erodes away Hmm. because you know all the volatiles are burning off um some people suggest that some of these comets again they're probably really small but they start spinning up. They have all this jet activity, and it mm-hmm. spins it up and spins it up, and eventually it reaches a point where the strength of the comet can't hold itself together and it, because it's spinning so rapidly, and it basically just spins itself into pieces. Hmm. Probably it's a mixture of all these different things. Yeah. For some comets, you know, like this comet gets down to 0.2 AU, maybe its thermal effects are going on. This comet gets so hot that literally it just fractures from thermal stress. Other cases, you may just have a big pocket of volatiles, and the pressure builds up. And again, being a small comet, it just blows itself into pieces. So we don't really know. Hmm. Okay. So for this object, which right now is pretty faint, you know, currently as of the time we're we're recording this, which is early December 2017, it's you know about 19th, 18th, 19th magnitude. But it looks like by the end of July, it should break 10th magnitude. And before we kind of lose it because it gets too close to the sun, we might be able to see it at 5.6 magnitude. <laughs> then we lose sight of it. Luckily, it gets close enough to the sun that we'll see it in the SOHO images a few, about a week or two after perihelion. And then the southern hemisphere, southern hemisphere folks will never get to see it. But here in the northern hemisphere, we'll pick it up again in October when it's fainter. So we'll definitely know whether it survived or not. Um, it's just whether or not we'll actually see it break up because there are a few weeks there where we'll just lose track of it. Okay. Can you explain to everybody just real quickly what SOHO is? Oh, SOHO is... You know what? I forgot what the acronym is. <laughs> but I can tell you what it is. It's, it's a satellite that is actually at one of the Lagrange points, about a million kilometers in front of the Earth, between the Earth and the Sun. Mm-hmm. And what it does is it watches the sun, uh, takes pictures of the sun pretty much every, I can't remember exactly how many minutes, takes pictures of the sun. But it has chronographs on there. Oh, yes, it's the Solar and Heliospheric Observatory. There you go. It's an ESA NASA mission, and it's got a chronograph that covers the sky out to about nine degrees from the sun. And the chronograph was really there to look at the corona, hence the name coronagraph. But it's really good at discovering comets. And in fact, SOHO is the premier comet discoverer of all time. I think is it it's really? Got, it's got about 2,000 or plus comets. Oh, my 
that have been discovered with it. It's so many comets have been discovered with it that people are actually not really keeping track of them anymore. <laughs> Well, because most of them, uh, I, I've seen a lot of Soho images of comets. Looks like they come in one side and they don't come out the other either. So. Yeah, very few of them survive. Most yeah. of them are Kreutz sungrazers, right. related to the great sungrazers of the past, like Akiyasaki mm-hmm. and even Lovejoy from a couple of years back. And yeah, most of them do not survive at all. Okay, but it, this will be a comet that we will see go through that field. So hopefully, if it's still around a few weeks after perihelion, we'll be oh, able to. Yep. Yeah. So that's actually the end of the long period comets. The next four comets that we're going to be talking about are actually all short period comets. And the first one, first of these short period comets, and this one will get peak brightness and perihelion in September, is actually 21P Jacobini's Inner. Uh-huh. I've seen this before. Mm-hmm. So this comet was discovered in 1900 um, by Michael Jacobini of France. It was rediscovered in 1913 by Ernst Zinner of Germany. Both discoveries were visual discoveries. This will be its 16th observed apparition or return. Uh, last time it was here was in 2012, because it's currently on about a six-and-a-half-year orbit. A lot of people observed this comet back in 85, yep. when it showed up just prior to Halley. Um, in fact, it was the first comet to be visited by a spacecraft the ICE, ICE mission, the International Cometary Explorer, which used to be the International Sun-Earth Explorer 3 mission, <laughs> that flew past it. It's also well-known because it's the parent of the Jacobinids or Draconids, depending on how you want to call them, meteor showers, which were, these are showers that had huge meteor storms back, at, it was 1933 and 1946. This year, Jacobini's inner comes within 0.39 AU of the Earth, which is the closest this comet's come to the Earth since 1959. And the closest it will come until 2078. So this is pretty much as good as this comet gets. Though it actually has an orbit that if the things align really well, it could come within two hundredths of an AU of the Earth. Wow. Yeah. But unfortunately, in our lifetimes, we won't be so lucky for Jacobini's inner. Which is also explains why it has a meteor shower. Because mm-hmm. its orbit does cross the Earth. Okay. So Jacobini's inner will... This summer will be a good object to follow this summer into the fall. Um, it's observable from both hemispheres. Um, I should take that back. It's observable from the northern hemisphere prior to perihelion, and then it shifts. Even though it goes south, we can still get it from the northern hemisphere, but at least the southern hemisphere folks can pick it up. Um, again, to kind of put things in perspective, its meteor shower comes from Draco. So when the comet is inbound relative to the Earth, it comes from the northern hemisphere, from the high northern declinations. So we expect this comet to break about 10th magnitude by about July, and the peak around 6th or 7th magnitude in September. And you'll still be able to follow it probably into November before it becomes too faint for most visual observers. Now this this comet has, I, I believe in the past, had a relatively nice tail on it too, didn't it? It has a nice ion tail. Yeah. Yeah, yeah this is one of those really good, almost, you call them lollipop comets. Right, right. I seem to remember that. Yep. The next comet on the list, which is also short period, has about a 9.4-year orbit, is 64P Swift Gerrels. A uh, comet was first discovered visually back in 1889, so by uh, Lewis Swift up in Rochester, New York. Uh, it was rediscovered photographically in 72 by Tom Gerrels at the Palomar Observatory. Of course, Tom Gerrels would go on to found Space Watch, which discovered a lot of comets of their own. This is its seventh observed return. 
last time it was seen in 2009. And some people may remember it from 1981 when it also reached ninth magnitude, which is similar to what it's doing now, which was its best return. Okay. This is a comet that otherwise doesn't usually get bright, but when it does, you know, get close to the Earth, like now, um, in 1981, it just kind of breaks that tenth magnitude barrier. So its perihelion is at 1.39 AU, so basically 1.4 AU, and it'll reach that in early November. And the reason why it's kind of going to be bright is because it's going through opposition. So it almost is as comes as close to the Earth as it can at 0.44 AU this time around. Again, it's a comet that's a little better for the northern hemisphere, though southern hemisphere observers might be able to pick it up low on their northern horizon. And, yeah, it's, it's an October-November comet, so this will be a nice one to follow. Okay. It moves slowly through kind of the Andromeda region of the sky. So it could actually be some nice photo ops, too, for imagers as it goes through the, the winter Milky Way up there. And then the next comet is one that actually only comes around every 38 years. So it's a Halley family comet. And this is 38P Stefan Otterma. And this was first discovered back in 1867. Um, it was missed its next time around, but it was rediscovered in 1942. So this is only the fourth observed return for this comet. Uh, it was last seen in 1980 when, and I know looking through the Alpo archives, it was well observed when it reached about 8th, ninth magnitude. Mm-hmm. And this year will be similar. It, uh, it'll be an object more towards the tail end of the year. Uh, perihelion is in early November at about 1.6 AU. And it comes about as close to the Earth as it can come. And it will brighten up to about magnitude 9 in the October, November, December time frame. So that leads us to our last comet. And unless barring you know, a bright discovery, which can happen at any time... right. And I'm sure this list of seven comets brighter than tenth magnitude is will not be complete. <laughs> if you know, looking at w- the way things have been going, I'm sure there'll be at least two or three other comets discovered that will get just as bright. But barring a surprise, the brightest comet of the year will be Comet 46P Bertanen. And this comet may ring a bell to a lot of people. Um, first of all, it comes around every 5.4 years. It does get reasonably bright, so there's been plenty of times over the past, you know, couple decades where it has been gotten up to 8th, ninth, 10th magnitude, so people may have observed it. It was a photographic discovery back in 1947 by Carl Vertanen at the Lick Observatory, who actually wasn't looking for comets. He was doing a uh, nearby star proper motion survey. It's its 12th observed return. What sets this year apart from the other years that Vertanen has come by is that it comes really close to the Earth. 0.07 AU from the Earth. Oh my goodness. On December 16th. And this is by far the closest known approach for this particular comet. So this will be its brightest apparition since discovery and at least looking at 100 years forward. doesn't look like anything will be better. How close did Hale-Bopp get to us? Do you remember? Not very. No? Hale-Bopp was greater than 1 AU. Okay. Wow. That's one of those what-if scenarios. Yeah. Imagine if Hale Bopp had been on Hyakutake's orbit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, talking not negative first magnitude, but yeah. you know, negative eight or something like yeah. that. Yeah, oh, my goodness. Yeah, I mean, Hale Bopp's one of those amazing comets for as bright as it was, right. it didn't come especially close. That's it really crazy. was one of those once-every-200-year yeah. type things. Yeah. yeah. So Vertanen will come very close. 
We know quite a bit about it because it was the original target of the Rosetta mission. Was it really? Yeah. Um, Rosetta was supposed to go to this comet, and then Rosetta was delayed. Oh. And that's why they shifted targets to 67P, Sheremov, Jaroshimenko. Huh. I did not so, know Yeah, so we actually know quite a bit about it. I mean, there were a lot of big telescopes studying Britannin when it was out near its aphelion. So we know what its rotation rate is. We know it has a small nucleus. It's only about 1.2 kilometers across. So it's kind of like Hartley 2, where small nucleus but extremely active, almost hyperactive. Hmm. And this comet could get as bright as third magnitude around its time of perihelion, which also happens to be its time of closest approach. So that's, this, in, that's in December of next year? Yeah, December of next year. Okay. So it starts off pretty far in the southern hemisphere, so a lot of people who are you know, at the very northern latitudes might have a hard time picking it up. But by the time we roll into late November and then early December, it is racing north. And I it goes basically through the, the winter constellations there. And by the end of December, it'll be the Southern Hemisphere folks who will have a hard time seeing it, but it'll be located pretty high in the north and northern sky. And if it follows the same brightening, you know, brightness trends as its previous years, it could peak at about magnitude 3.0. Easy, naked eye. Well, there's always caveats with these <laughs> short period comments. Because yeah. it will be big, diffuse ball, and so I kind of I said that tongue in cheek. You know, that's uh, how many how many easy naked eye comets have we really had? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So, like from my backyard, sure, naked eye, yeah. not a problem. Right. But if you've got a lot of you know light pollution, it might be a little bit hard to to see this one. And this one, because it'll be big and diffuse, it'll be easy in binoculars. It'll be easy in a telescope. It's actually, we've had a nice run of comets over the past couple of years that have just come extremely close to the Earth. And they seem to fall into kind of two flavors. One is barely active comets that even though they come even closer to Britannin, they don't get brighter in 12th, 13th magnitude because they're basically inactive. They just have a you know thin tail. So they're basically CCD objects. Mm-hmm. And then we have comets like earlier in this year, 2017, we had Honda Merkash Pajasakova, Pajasakova. We had 252p linear a year or two back. Right. And yeah, like linear got up to third magnitude. Right. But it was a big fuzzball. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't always the easiest thing to find. And I know there were quite a few people that couldn't find it because they were looking in probably telescopes that were too big. And the light was just too spread out. And in a way, they were kind of looking through it. So when you do look at these kind of very diffuse comets, even when they're bright, if you can see them naked eye, great. That's how you should do your magnitude estimate. Mm-hmm. But that's not always easy, too, because you're trying to compare the brightness of a diffuse source with a star. <coughs> or try to use the smallest pair of binoculars you have. And that's probably, I mean, it, the general rule of thumb when you're trying when you're doing visual magnitude estimates is use the smallest aperture, smallest power you can, where you can still see the comet. And that's something that I think, when, when I looked at all, a lot of the, the visual magnitudes that are coming in nowadays, not just to the ALPO, but to all the various groups out there, like the International Comet Quarterly or the Comet Observation System, um, people are using too large telescopes. Oh. 
And so they're spreading, the magnification is too high, they're spreading out the coma too much, and you start losing the outer edge of the coma. So you end up underestimating how bright the comet truly is. Yeah, I think I used like 7 by 50 binoculars when I did magnitude estimates of comets. Yeah. So I do that too, where I've got a pair of 30 by 125s. Those are my, that's my go-to telescope, because I literally can just carry it outside, stick it on a tripod. And then I got 10 by 50s. And so sometimes I feel bad because once the comet gets bright, I'm only looking at it with a ten with ten by fifties, and I wonder like what am I missing by not looking at it through a much bigger telescope? But for the magnitude estimate, you do a much better job with these smaller aperture uh, instruments. And I and definitely for most comets, I recommend and highly prefer binoculars. Yeah, well that's the thing. I, that's I, that's one thing I, I do remember is is too much magnification is bad for a comet. I mean. Yes. It, mm-hmm. really, it really is. You you don't see the detail as as, as much as you know as with a smaller aperture telescope or binoculars. Yeah, and you see it too when these comets come inbound. Like a good example is Comet Hines, the first comet I talked about. Right now, it's looking like it's fifteenth magnitude, which means it's kind of coming in fainter than we thought. But I'm pretty sure at some point it's going to magically brighten from fifteen to ten in what appears to be a week. Mm-hmm. And what's really happening is that people are looking at it, either they're observing it with CCDs, which are usually red-sensitive, they're only seeing the dust, uh, or they're observing with their 16-inch Dobsonian in the backyard with you know 300 power, and they're not seeing the gas coma, which is much bigger. And then at some point, it's going to get bright enough that someone is going to sit out there with 10 by 50s. And do visual magnitude estimates. and Yeah, and go, holy cow, to things, you know, 20 arc minutes across, and it's mm. When it's, when it's how they were measuring it as opposed to what the comet's actually doing. Exactly. Ah, okay, good yeah. point. Yeah. Good but point. that's why it's good to have people doing using all different kind of systems, whether it's CCD or visual, whether they're using binoculars or you know larger telescopes. But it does take a little bit of kind of interpreting the magnitudes that come in as to exactly what's going on. That's great. That's great. Now, do you have charts available for these or a, a write-up that we could add as a link to the podcast? Yes, we can. I'll have to send you to send them to you later, um, okay. and you can add them in there. Okay. Um, I don't actually produce charts anymore, specifically mm-hmm. for the comets, because there's so many charts that are out there. Well, that's what I figured. If, if, if you just give me a link to where they're at, or I can go look yeah. for them, too. But yeah. yeah, there's a few good sites where you can do that. And uh, one thing I would suggest that you know we, we haven't been getting a lot of, even though I know there's a lot of people out there who do this, is drawings. Um, there's only been one observer who's actually been submitting drawings lately to the Outpo Comet section, but I know if you look on Cloudy Nights and stuff, there are still people out there drawing comets all the time. Right. And the, the thing that that I you know I worry a lot is that a lot of people, and this is true of whether it's comets or observing Jupiter, Mars, whatever, is that everyone thinks, well, CCDs are better. But the problem is, CCDs don't always show you what the human eye sees. Right. Not only is does it make it hard to compare with what observers saw when they were observing comets, you know, 50, 100, 200 years ago, they can sometimes pick out details that are lost or just not easily seen with CCD images. I mean, the, the human eye is a better detector when it comes to looking at low contrast and, and sort of things. I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> mm-hmm. you gotta, and training yourself to be a better observer, you can't do that with a camera. No, you can't. You can only do that by looking through the telescope. That's, that's yep. a good point. That's, 
That's a good point. Okay. Well, maybe we can uh, touch base again when some of these comets, if they brighten suddenly or something, or they become excellent objects for observing, we can just chat again, and we can give, you can give us an update on the various comets as they come in throughout the year. Sounds good, yeah. I would think, um, you know, there's always going to be a new comet discovered, at which point we can quickly throw a podcast together, and then it does seem like a natural time would be about six months from now. That sounds good. That sounds good. Well, a much better idea as to how some of these comets are doing. Okay. If you're not too busy with uh, OSIRIS-REx at that time, too. <laughs> yeah. We, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thinking six months out on that project is going to be a little crazy. Six months from now should be okay. Yeah. Six months after that, I don't know. <laughs> All right. All right. All right. Well, Carl, uh, how can everybody get a hold of you? So the best way to get a hold of me is actually through my Alpo email address, which is carl.hergenrother at alpo-astronomy.org. And I will add a link to that on the website. Yep. Sounds Great. Good. Well, mm-hmm. Carl, I really want to thank you for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. All right, let's go look at comets. <laughs> yeah. Of course, it's cloudy now. <laughs> of course it is. Okay, well, that will do it for this episode of the Observer's Notebook Pack podcast. I again want to thank Carl Hergenrother for coming on and giving us an update on what we can expect to see in the year 2018 with our comets. Sounds like it's going to be a really, really good year. We upload a new episode of the Observer's Notebook every few weeks. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you do, please go on there, give us a rating, and review us. It brings more people to the podcast, and I really would appreciate it. You can also listen to us on SoundCloud. The link is in the show notes, and we're also on Google Play and Stitcher, and just about anywhere else you can find a podcast. You can help support the podcast by donating to it via Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com, by giving as little as $1 a month. If you feel so generous to give $35 a month, you'll receive a year's membership in the ALPO along with producer credits on the podcast. And with that, I want to thank the producer of this podcast, Steve Seidentop, for his continued generous support of the Observer's Notebook. Steve, thank you very much. The link for Patreon as well as the link for the ALPO is in the show notes. You can contact me at cometman at cometman.net. Hey, we just had a talk about comets. Isn't that amazing? Cometman. Someday I'll tell you the story why it's Cometman. Or on Twitter at at ObserversNBPod. You can find out more about the ALPO by going to www.alpo-astronomy.org and there you can join the ALPO. Membership begins at only $14 a year. So it's the price of a couple cups of coffee at Starbucks, so get out there and join the ALPO. You can find the ALPO on Facebook by searching ALPO Astronomy and also the podcast. Yes, we have a Facebook page as well. Just search for Observer's Notebook. The ALPO is an international organization devoted to the study of the sun, moon, planets, asteroids, meteors, and comets. Our goals are to stimulate, coordinate, and generally promote the study of these bodies using methods and instruments that are available within the communities of both amateur and professional astronomers. Until next time, my hope is you have clear and steady skies. Thank you for listening.